Chris Shadow is a core developer for React, the open source JavaScript library from Facebook, as well as the other tools and platforms that are surrounding the Facebook open source ecosystem. Chris, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. On Software Engineering Daily, we had a week of shows about React and the other Facebook projects like GraphQL. And one question I kept thinking of was, with all these open source projects, what is the big picture of the future that Facebook is building towards? Mm. So one of the big realizations when I've been working on React Native is that people, like, I'm, I'm working on the React Native team, and for me, like, React Native is just, like, the UI components and, like, the way you build React Native. But for developers that are switching from iOS or coming from web or Android, they don't see React Native as just this small thing. They see it as everything, like the way you build your entire uh, application. So for them, like the IDE, the flow to complete, the type checking, the testing, like all of those are like together. And this is like one of the, like, this is React Native for them. And so given this, now what we want to do is to make sure like we take all of those pieces together and make them into like one coherent platform so that people can develop like much faster than they used to. Do you see this platform looking something like the iOS ecosystem in the early days? Uh, how so? Well, just in the sense that it's kind of a game changing. I mean, in, in the sense that it's a, it's a suite of tools, it's a suite of platforms, uh, and it seems like it's it really changes how a developers would would want to think about architecting mm. their projects. Yeah. So I think I wouldn't say game changing because like it's way too early like there's not enough apps built with it to say that but it's definitely like a big change in like how you build applications. Mm. So uh, I really want to emphasize on the fact that React Native is still super early and like we need your help like to build it. So yeah. Right, okay. So uh, I mean I think you kind of discuss this but i mean do you see these as like a loose set of tools or a concentrated platform mm. or is it kind of both yeah so when we started with react and open source at facebook we started as loose like tooling because like react like needed to be embedded inside of the facebook uh world where like everything was deep like there was no single like libraries or abstraction inside of facebook but now with React Native, we have the chance to start from scratch. And so by starting from scratch, we can actually integrate like all of those together in a very robust way. But we also spent a lot of time trying to make sure uh, you're not stuck in this world. So for example, uh, if you're a JavaScript developer and you have like and you want to install like some node modules that does what you want, like if it doesn't have a dependency on the DOM, then you're going to be able to inject it in your React Native project. Same if you already have existing or like someone wrote some uh, iOS or Android components or like libraries or like something like this, we want to ensure that you can uh, use it within React Native. So it started as loose coupling and now we are like putting all of those together and hopefully like in a year or two, like it's going to be a much better experience. So we'll get into the more granular level a little further on, but... Um, to motivate this a little further, um, you sent me this really good talk that your colleague Nick Schrock yep. gave at the At Scale conference, and he was sort of talking about the mobile revolution and how yep. 
it changed things from the from the world prior to the mobile revolution. And he said that the mobile revolution has been a giant leap forward for consumers and a big step backwards for developers and product organizations. Mm. In what ways is mobile a step back for developer organizations? So mobile is a big step back for, I think, three big reasons. So the first one is that it's much slower to build like one app like iOS or Android or mobile web than it was like to build like just a website because like the tooling is not like you don't have live reload uh, even to recompile it takes a lot of time and like the tooling is still like immature compared to like the dozens of years like we had on the web. So the second thing is uh, the cross-platform aspect. So right now, like today, if you want to build a high-quality app, you need to do it on iOS or Android and on web. And so what this means is you've got like three, you need to staff three developers to do exactly the same thing. And this is not only uh, increasing the cost by 3x, but even more, because you've got like communication overhead. And then like there's a lot of subtle effects. So for example, one thing we realized is that because you're tasking the same, uh, like you're tasking three people to do the same uh, like job, and you can measure like what they do. So it puts a competition between those three people, and now they are trying to like be the best. Like the way the setup is, they want to be the best, and now they are going to do things not to like make the project better, like the company better, but to make sure they're better than the others. And so, like, there's those kinds of the negative, um, like, negative things that come with it. So this is, like, the first two. And the third point is being able to deploy the app whenever we want. So with the Apple uh, model, you've got to uh, ask for Apple to review whatever you did and wait for them. Then you're able to ship. As Whereas on the web, like, we were basically on our own and, like, we could... Uh, release like whenever we wanted and so like all of those three combined make it a lot more expensive to build the same Facebook that we had like five years ago Mm. yeah and so I think one of those uh, big problems that is uh, maybe on a on a different from a different angle is Mm. has uh, a domain specific issue within Facebook is the Facebook app is really giant, and it takes yep. a long time to build. And yep. so there's this problem at Facebook where, if you want to build the, if you want to, if you want to develop a feature on the iOS app, um, like it takes a super long time to build it. So if you're like trying to write that feature and like test your code iteratively and stuff, uh, every time you make a change traditionally to the iOS app, you would have to build, and yep. that build process would take a really long time. Can you talk about how React Native alleviates that pain? So the compilation model of iOS is that you need to build everything in order to like run your app. Whereas in the, the great thing about React Native, like it uses JavaScript. And so you can only load the JavaScript that you need on demand. And so this is like... Like one of the big things we are trying to do right now is to reduce the time it takes to like load the app. And so what we want is to only load the components that are needed to render the first screen. And so unfortunately on like 
if you're on uh, iOS or Android, you need to boot like everything, uh, get everything into memory, and then you can like start working. And and so this is like when you first load the app, but there's also one factor that's like not appreciated, which is the developer, like the end user, sorry, needs to download like this gigantic like bundle, like dozens of megabytes, uh, like the first time they want to load, and every time they've got to update, they need to download like everything. And in as you said, like in the Facebook app, there's ton of things that are, are very useful for like some set of users. For example, like all our ads uh, interface, like are really inside of the app are really useful for advertisers. But if you're not an advertiser, you're never going to like use it. So why should we send you all the bytes needed to make it run? So React Native, because we can send like JavaScript on demand and load JavaScript on demand, it gives us an advantage of we can actually more finely tune like what we load and what we don't. Hmm. Well, one thing I am interested in is like React Native has launched at this point for both iOS and Android, yeah. and you have some interaction with both of these teams. A significant interaction. Mm. How do these two React Native projects compare? And like, what are the difficulties in bridging the gaps between the two projects? Mm. So one of the things that we decided, like from like day one, is we were going to share like all the JavaScript layer of React Native, and the clients have been designed to be like like as thin as possible. So JavaScript is in charge. And so uh, JavaScript are going to say like, oh, native do this, 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 and this. And so now it's up to the native implementation to actually implement this. And so uh, the great thing with this is that you're able to write the same JavaScript and it's going to like talk the same way and it doesn't really know about like, oh, am I targeting iOS or am I targeting Android? And so on this base, like it gives us like more freedom and now what's interesting is uh, each platform has specific APIs and like performance optimizations. So for example, on the iOS, uh, if you're a web developer, you know that by default, all the views are overflow visible. So if you have a view and inside of the view, it extends outside of the container view, then you're going to be able to see it. And so this is also the way uh, iOS is designed. But on Android, like the default is everything is uh, clipped inside of the rectangle, of the container rectangle. And so now we've got to make like hard decisions like what should we do? Because like if we change the default to one, it's going to be like slower on the other. But at the same time, like you want to be able to control and you don't want to be, uh, to have a different uh, uh, behavior. So for example, this one, like we, are, we don't know yet the answer. So right now they have two different behavior, which like is really killing me. But like those are the kind of things that we encounter when we like work on iOS or Android and web. Yeah, is this like the tip of the iceberg? I mean, are you gonna have? I imagine you're gonna yeah. have even tougher decisions. And these are you're just you probably are dealing with these kind of first ones right now, and probably mm. you're thinking about the sort of principles that you're gonna mm. set forward. Yeah. So actually, like the way we started the project was. We wanted to implement, like we went uh, to talk to the iOS, uh, web, and Android engineers, and we asked them, like, what is the hardest thing you can do? Like, you you can do, and like, this is very hard in iOS, Android. 
And so this was our first like test. We're going to implement them in React Native, like the early version that we had. And then we try to like make sure we see all of those like upfront, like as fast as possible. And so, and it actually worked pretty well because like since uh, last year, like React Native has been uh, started like two years ago. And in the first year, we like saw like basically all of the problems that we know today. So we ha we haven't like like realized something like groundbreaking like in the past year, and it's actually good because it uh, it shows that the system is actually uh, robust, at least yeah. in my opinion. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so the tagline of React Native is uh, "Learn once, write anywhere." And yeah. what this means is that teams can share React components across platforms yeah. with a lot of code reuse um, or, or code that looks very similar. Yep. Um, so since we last talked, have there been any new projects at Facebook where this dream has been realized and there's, you know, the, 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 you know, the iOS teams and the Android teams, and the web teams are all working together mm -hmm. in the way that you kind of imagined where the, you know, the pains and the, mm. the cross-platform problems have been simplified? Yeah. So for the product teams now, like all the teams that reach out to us saying, oh, I want to use React Native, like the first thing they say is, if I'm building it on iOS, I'm also building it on Android at the same time. And this is very good because it reduces their uh, amount of work by two and like, this is good. But... Like we, so we tested it on Ads Manager, and we it's actually shipped on the iOS and Android. So all of those new teams are not shipped yet to the world, but like they're making good progress. But one thing that's interesting is more on the infrastructure side. We started sharing more and more code with the like Facebook uh, ecosystem. So for example, like all the network layer, all the uh, image caching. Now we're starting to use more and more those abstractions that were in the native app and have been written. Uh, some of them have been written cross-platform, and so this is actually like this is good because we have the opportunity to cre design an API that works on all of those. And because like we've like implemented the same thing on like web, iOS, Android, like some patterns emerged, like some good practices and things like this. And so we've been able to, when we Design those APIs to incorporate like all the learnings we've done, like we've had for from like the past like five years, so that the default behavior for users for developers is like the one we know is going to scale. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so one of the topics that I didn't get to discuss much during React Week is mm. New Clyde, which yep. is Facebook's IDE built on top of Atom. Yep. What was the initial motivation for New Clyde? Mm. So uh, the history of Nuclide is uh, like when I joined like three and a half years ago, like there was no ID or anything. Like you would SSH to a sandbox and use Emacs or VI or like a, like a virtual drive and like start coding. But what we realized is that, uh, like for writing PHP, sorry. But what we realized is that a lot of people don't really know how to configure like Emacs and VI or like all of this and like they were running it with like really suboptimal setups. And so the first thing we did was to implement an ID called FBID and this was uh, an ID running on the web on your server machine. 
and it worked really well but unfortunately like it didn't like really scale and like there was like many like issues with the way it was written and someone uh like during a hackathon or something said like oh atom sounds interesting like i'm going to start uh like writing an idea on top of this and more and more like atom is really hackable and extensible and so like in a very short time uh, time span, he re-implemented like all the features of FBID, and now we are all like all the people using FBID have switched to uh, Nuclide. Wow! Um... So, so this is like for the internal story, and like like there's a lot of like efforts going on to like improve like hack support, uh, like flow integration, and all of this. So now for the open source part. This is one of the things where, like, Nuclide was open source, like, very, very early in the in the process, and like, right now, it's like, in my opinion, it's not yet a good experience. Like, the like the team has not been focused on open source like as much because they've got so many things to work internally. But the way we the way we see open source as Facebook is, we want to continue like investing in things, and so the first thing we release like may not be like like the best but then we like two years down the road we're still going to invest in it and like make it better every release mm. so i thought adam was just a text editor like i knew it was hackable but yeah. um i mean I, I assume you've talked some to the github teams yeah. who, who developed adam was adam originally conceived did they think it could become a full-fledged ide uh I don't know the story behind this, but I'm pretty sure they did. Because when you think about it, an idea is like a text editor with some more features. And some features are like, oh, you've got autocomplete, you've got uh, the test results in line, you've got, like, if you're, visual, like, if you're working on like iOS, like you've got your uh, iOS simulator in line, like all of this together. But really at the core of the idea is the text editor plus all the integration with the language. Hmm. Does does Nuclide do things that have not been done before, or does it just kind of do the same things in a much faster, better designed way? Uh, I think like one of the things that Nuclide really like pioneered is being able to, for anyone working on the web to like hack the editor and make it better. Because like I remember, I tried to like modify like do a visual studio extension like it was like it was pretty involved <laughs> and like nuclide because it's all the web technology like you can go in and hack everything so oops so it's not like revolutionary like because like uh, sublime can do it in python or whatever but for the web community i think like this is like one of the big advantage and because it lets people extend it in like so many ways like we like we've been able to do like Facebook specific things like uh, like a lot inside of Nuclide. Mm. Does Nuclide make React Native development significantly easier? Uh, yeah, I think like internally, like we've got like Flow autocomplete. Like this is like if you write your code using Flow and just like you can like run the test like within the IDE, you can like dot to autocomplete you can like mouse over to see which uh like which variable is which type and thing like this and but we want to add more things so right now 
like when you said like nuclide is fast, like right now atom and nuclide is like slower than sublime. So one of the focus of, of the team is uh, make it like as fast as sublime. Hmm. Do you still have to use Xcode for iOS development? So like one thing like I realized is that when I'm working on React Native as a product engineer, I don't use Xcode at all. Like React Native has been designed so that all the JavaScript can be run uh, inside of, like can be written in like JavaScript. And the only time when you want to like write some uh, Objective-C is when you want to add a custom extension or like write some like native bits. But this like Xcode actually does it like pretty well. Like, and like it's not worth investing like a lot of time and effort to like re-implement Xcode just for like five like the five minutes that we're going to use it like in your lifetime. Hmm. Interesting. One of the issues that I think about is like it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that it's so easy to make web apps when it's not easy to make successful mobile apps. And maybe that's that sounds like kind of a naive phrase, but like if I think about the pace at which my bookmarks change at the top of my browser versus the pace at which my apps change on my home screen, I think the apps on my home screen change a lot less often than my bookmarks. Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot smaller universe of apps that I would be potentially yeah. uh, changing. And actually, you retweeted a, an interesting Medium post recently that had like this chart of uh, the frequency of downloads from the App Store. And it was like just this yeah. crazy, crazy um, like power law distribution where just like, you know, the very, very um, small minority of apps had the vast majority uh, of downloads. And there's not really a reason why that should be the case in the long term. There's no reason why mobile app development should be so hard. So anyway, well, let's talk about evangelism. Um, the Facebook open source team was remarkably open to coming on Software Engineering Daily, just as you've come on right now. Does Facebook actively encourage teams to talk to the broader developer community, or is this is this just a natural outgrowth of the open source model? Like, I think the the way the, the reason why open source at Facebook is so successful right now is because like the people working on it are like super passionate. Like they want to like talk about it and everything. And like I know when we open source React, like there was like a lot of like pressure from like the management saying like, yeah, we've we've tried this open source thing but it didn't really work and like so we had to push back and like basically we had to do it ourselves. And now that it's working, like it's much like it's much easier for like you don't have to struggle that much to like go and talk somewhere. And we're also like encouraging, like we're organi organizing conferences like uh, React JS Conf and uh, F8 and like AdScale and all of those, so that we can like talk about all our open source thing and things. Mm. But one thing I really, I think it, this is fundamentally different with open sources. We've tried to go and talk at very, at, like Facebook pushed us to talk like everywhere, like even since like before the really big open source push, but. If you're talking about how Facebook does things in the abstract, like no one cares because like it feels like advertising. But if you open source something and talk about it, 
then like all the people like want to talk to you and they invite you to talks and conferences and things like this. So I think by open sourcing like uh, products, we have like more people that want to hear for us, from us. And then like it's much easier to say, yeah, yeah. Like you asked me to come, I say yes. Whereas like, oh, like I'm going to submit a paper to this conference and get legal approval and management <laughs> approval and things like this. Yeah. Which we have well, to do anyway. <laughs> So yeah, and and I think like evidence, kind of evidence of what you're saying. You you told me that Facebook blog posts that are about open sourcing software have yeah. about 10x the number of views that a generic post has. Yeah, no, this is crazy. Um, that's really interesting, and and it kind of also suggests that the evangelism that you spend your time doing is not it's not like a distraction. You know, it's like yeah. it's obviously it has value, especially going back to what you said at the beginning of this conversation where you need the help from the open source community mm. to get this stuff rolling. So you organized the React.js conference, and you've spoken at a bunch of events yeah. uh, around this time. What are the challenges around organizing and speaking at these events and communicating with developers? Mm. So, yeah, it was super interesting like to organize this event because like this is the first time I organized like any event. Like the biggest thing I organized before was like parties at my house, like when I was in college. But <laughs> uh, what's super interesting is like this is all about people. Like all the speakers, like you want to like have like intimate relationships to them to make sure like they're going to like feel like uh, what they're doing is like relevant and like they're enjoyed coming here and. And this is like one of the things I realized when I talked to conferences. So some of the conferences, like I just talked there and like I had no like contact with the conference organizer or anything like ever. And it feels like in the conference, like it's not as warm, like people don't talk to each other, like it's a bit boring. Whereas like the, the events were like the organizer like reach out to me personally and like we had chat and like I could like throw questions and get answers like super quick like those were like people were super passionate like both the speakers but also the attendees interesting okay well so uh we got a bunch of listener questions so I want to I want to make sure we get to all of these so I'm going to start asking you some of these um people tweeted these at me I you know I asked for questions and um and if other people are listening to this and they don't know about my Twitter. It's uh, at software underscore daily. There's also a Slack channel if you have questions about speakers in the future. So um, the first question is from Mike Amize. uh, And he says, React inline styles have a number of limitations. Other projects have been created to address these, notably Radium for pseudo classes and media queries. What does Facebook use internally to meet these needs, and how heavily does Facebook use inline styling? Yeah, so uh, the whole inline style uh, like thing came from like sli- my slides uh, React uh, CSS in JS, and the reason why I did those slides is because we are using inline style in React Native, and I didn't want it to be a controversy when. Uh, we would release React Native. And because, like, if you remember the React announcement, like, everyone freaked out about JSX and no one really, like, saw React. <laughs> so I wanted, like, to get this out of the way so that, like, React Native is, like, doesn't have some drama around it or around that. But what I did not expect is that, 
so many people would like read it and like build things around it and like criticize it and everything. And like it's really sparked like a, a whole field of the front end development, which is crazy. So now, uh, in the context of Facebook, so in the first half of the slides, I explain uh, CX and like all the problems, but I also explain what we use at Facebook. So, and this, and as I mentioned, like it gets us like 90% there. And so now inline styles can get us 100% there, but there are still like some issues to overcome as you mentioned. And so doing like a very big push to change like the entire way we send styles on the web for like a 10% like improvement, like it doesn't really make sense. Like mm. it's hard to sell the project. Sure. Got so, it. but there's been people inside of the company that like really tried. So for example, like the Instagram t uh, team, when they rewrote their own thing, like they used uh, inline styles and now the past team is doing the same and like, and like, they're trying to get like momentum, but like it's hard because like people are still uh, stigmatized by this concept. Mm. And what you talked about radium. So just one thing is that Jan Obermüller is working at Facebook and is the main contributor of radium. So like this is like like several people inside of the company are trying to push inline styles, but the like the biggest place where we use inline style is in like React Native. Because you mm -hmm. cannot use CSS. Okay, got it. Um, so, listener Paul Young posted a link to something called React Native for Web, uh, yep. and I, I did get really get a chance to look at it. Other than <laughs> that, it was called React Native for Web. What is the purpose of that? Why wouldn't you just use normal React? Okay, so this is like I'm like when I studied React Native, like everyone I talked to was like you need the primitives to be like platform specific. Otherwise, like, like this is too crazy. Like with the cross-platform dream, like everyone like <laughs> tried it, it doesn't work. But I was actually convinced that if you don't share the, the low-level building blocks, you cannot share anything. You can share any view code. And so I set out to find like the minimal set of abstractions that were needed to like build an app. And those came out to be view, text, and image. And so now my goal was to build, like, try to build as cross-platform as possible, but make sure that you can still build like anything you want. And what I quickly realized is that you only need Zeus to build like 95% of your app. And so I made Zeus so that they can they can be polyfilled on the web. So for example, like all the style attributes, like all the namings are the same on the web. And this gives us like a really good opportunity when times come where let's say you have ads manager on iOS that you ported on Android and now you want to port it on the web. Then what you've got, just got to do is to uh, re-implement view, text, image, and like the few uh, native components that, that are using. And now it just runs. And so going, and now you need to like do some tricks to make it well on the browser, but this is the dream. Like this is, you want to have one code base and share it everywhere. And so the reason why like it, like it isn't like officially supported or anything is because of uh, prioritization. Like this is a non-trivial project to do. 
and like we had like so much other stuff to like to work on but this is like something i'm very passionate about and like when like we get more time and like less pressure like i really want uh to actually make it real sounds good listener ben peterson asks do you use react on personal projects if so how do you use it yeah so what's interesting is i like i have a lot of personal projects but they're all related to like react and react native because like this is what i'm passionate about <laughs> so like one example i've did like recently is uh right now as i told you we're trying to uh improve the startup time and so one of the like one thing i wanted to know is which like modules that you require are loaded at startup and so i extracted this data as a, J- a big json blob and then I built a small React interface, you know, to be able to like deep, like uh, deep dive in the data, like move around and things like this to like understand the data more. And this is all built with React. Uh, one other thing I did was like it's two years ago, but the React website, uh, the React Native website, is actually built using React and using server-side rendering, which is pretty cool. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, and all the so I haven't built like something meaningful like for like on my own time, but like but all the small prototypes I do like every like now and then they're all using React, and mm. like I couldn't imagine like going back to raw manipulation like. <laughs> do you do you take like vacations and stuff and like go and hack on random things or I guess maybe that's that doesn't happen mm. right now. You're so busy. Yeah, so I t- just took like two weeks. My sister was in town, and like, so I'm French, and like I take like all of my vacation days, <laughs> like all of them. <laughs> oh, so I'm not. Yeah, this is weird because like a lot of people at Facebook like they don't want to take vacations. Like they think like they're more productive without it, but like I don't. I don't know. But yeah, when I, so yeah, one of the stories that the CSS layout, like the implementation of the layout, I actually did it while while I was on parental leave. And like while the baby was sleeping, like I would like just like build this thing, and <laughs> it turns out that it actually like worked at the end, and like now it's powering React Native, so it's been pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. Jeff Winkler says, uh, "Well, he asks for a CLI. Uh, he's, so we yep. have a request for a command line interface yep. that gives some boilerplate, uh, maybe something like you know Rails new." Mm. Yeah, I really want this. Like ever since uh, like we started React. Like I knew this is what we needed to do, and I actually like spent a lot of time lobbying uh, people inside of Facebook to open source like all of the projects that would be needed for that. So like Flow, Jest, uh, uh, Nuclide, uh, Relay, and all of those, because like you cannot like it's hard to build a CLI without all the tools that comes with it. But now the tricky part about the CLI is like we are not going to use it internally at Facebook. And so this is one of those things where it's super hard to prioritize because we're not using it internally at Facebook, so we're not going like we're not going to spend time like building it just for open source. And like when we get bug reports like or like pull requests or things like this, because we're not using it, like we won't know how to prioritize and things like this. And so like many people internally try to do it, but like none of those like really took off. And so actually what I'm most more excited about is on the React Native side because we control the entire environment. So now the getting started with React Native is React Native NPM install dash G React Native CLI, a React Native init. 
and then you just uh, open the Xcode project, press play, and it's working. Oh, that's awesome! What's so, the what's the boilerplate project it gives you? Uh, give you a plate with like Bubble and Jest and like Flow and uh, like a few things like this, and iOS and Android. Is it like a to-do app or something? Oh no, this is like just a white app, like blank app with just a text in the middle. Oh, awesome! That's but perfect. you can get like, and there's just an index.ios.js, index.android.js, and like now you can start hacking. Sure, very cool. Chris Gehrman asks, yeah. "What are React's strongest and weakest attributes?" Mm. And I'm gonna put a twist on that and ask. If you can talk about the more subtle strengths and weaknesses that we haven't discussed, I'm, mm. over the course of all our episodes, we've talked about a yeah. lot of the big strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. So, I think like one of the like weakness for us, like on the like React, React Native, and things like this, is what I just mentioned, which is that like if we're not using it internally, like for example inline styles or like the CLI or something like this, then like we're not going to in this time like building it, even though it's like super useful for the community, like for open source. And like, I don't have a, like a silver bullet for this. One thing that we've done is to give commit access to like a few people, but like they always seems to be blocked on us reviewing things. So like on the open source side of things, I think like this is our like weakest point right now. Now on React itself, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> It's a pretty broad question. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that's fine. Maybe I'll um, think about this sometimes. Yeah. So, so CX Fang One, uh, who by the way works at Alibaba, which mm. is kind of cool. Um, and if if he's listening, and if there's anybody from Alibaba that wants to come on the show, that would be a really interesting show, I'm sure. Um, so CX Fang One asks, why not use React Native in the Facebook main app? So we're actually using it. So if you look at the Pokes dashboard, this yeah. is using React Native. So and now we have like several projects uh, going on to like integrate into the main app. So one of the difficulties so far has been that like the main app because like there's everything like lumped together in it, like has some really hard constraints and like uh, me- memory, CPU, like time to start and everything like this. And this is also critical for the business. So. Like for the standalone apps, like because we just have React Native, like we can pay the cost of like the React Native SDK. But now for the main app, you've got to pay the cost of both the iOS SDK and like all those things running and the React Native SDK. And so this cost, like right now, is like a bit too high for people to just randomly like ship features. And we're working like super hard on Perf for this. But I'm really confident that. Uh, in a month or two, like we'll have like most of this resolved, and like we'll be able to uh, ship a lot more things. And then the second thing is uh, usually like for new products to come in, like you don't rewrite something that already exists. Like you build new products, and those products not only they have to like test out the React Native SDK and thing like this, but they also have to test out their own product. And so. Like they're doing a lot of like A/B testing and like making sure the metrics are good and things like this. And this like this is a fact of life. Like this takes time. And so we like we're waiting for them to like get their product right before they can ship. Hmm. But like we are like fully committed to like we have had like a few. I would say like a dozen like ten teams. I don't know. I don't know the exact number, but around ten teams like actively working on React Native like to integrate in the main app right now. Okay, so that's the end of the 
listener questions. I yeah. have some kind of larger scope questions mm-hmm. uh, about Facebook development in the whole and how that applies to your work and how you think about things. Um, one of the things that I found interesting about my conversations with Nick um, yeah. was just talking about how GraphQL fits into the low bandwidth type mm. of development. Um, and, you know, Facebook is in this really interesting spot where it's kind of becoming this public utility that, um, mm. you know, it's it's clearly of high value to to people in developing countries. Um, and, yep. you know, the, the, the internet.org uh, yep. initiative is, uh, is really interesting. It has, and, you know, people are just relying on Facebook increasingly as yep. a, uh, as a utility. Um, so I, I'm curious how this, how you think about this low bandwidth stuff. And, and I also, I know mm-hmm. Facebook has like a daily or a week, or is it like a weekly thing where like you, everybody has to go on low bandwidth or something or a monthly thing? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm just curious about this, about how this low bandwidth development stuff affects your work and your thinking. Yeah. So like Facebook is really good at optimizing one thing. So like there's like every six months, there's a, like a big all hands and like, like some, like Mark Zuckerberg is going to say like, okay, this six months we're going to focus on like, perf- like on the memory usage, on the uh, startup time or like 2G and things like this. And then like all the teams are like empowered to like do whatever they need to like achieve like this one objective while making sure like all the other metrics are like, like don't tank or whatever. And so, like right now it's 2G because like this is a super important like medium and like we are investing like you can get a 2G phone like we all the uni- like the performance testing is running on the real like shitty phones with 2G so like I would say like on the like on me personally like it it changes like what are my objectives like for the projects so before it was like oh integrate integrating to the main app and now like it's more like okay i need to integrate in the main app but i also need to be like super good on like bandwidth does that make sense yeah um has that do you have any interesting anecdotes for how that's changed course for certain projects or yeah or within react oh yeah so like the biggest thing is that like every i don't know like every year or two like facebook like uh implements something called fb lights which is like okay, we have, like, way too much, like, crap inside of the Facebook main app. Like, can we start, like, again from scratch and, like, ship it? And, like, all of those products are super interesting because, like, the requirements are, like, you want to be able to deliver, like, as good of an experience with, like, super limited constraints. And, like, right now, like, we've got this thing which is, like, we try to uh, load React Native in less than one second, uh, no, less than two seconds on a shitty phone, a shitty network. And like, this makes us rethink a lot of the assumptions. For example, uh, you, like with this kind of critical deadline, you can't require anything you don't use in the critical path. Otherwise, like it's just too slow. You cannot download anything you don't need. And like, and you've got to batch like every single request uh, so that you can like fetch everything at once. And so one of the great examples, which is a more public, is the Chrome team. Like they, like, they do a lot of talks around, like, how to get one second on mobile. And so this is those kind of efforts that are, like, going on. And 
they yeah they make you rethink a lot of the architecture when you design technology for these low bandwidth environments does that tend to help the technology that you're building for the high bandwidth individuals like just people in the united states yeah absolutely like because like this is one of the interesting thing is if you give someone like a shitty laptop he's going to like write a website that are way more optimized and that they are going to be like faster even for like higher end uh like desktop like we learned that and so yeah this is something that actually works like if you design with all of those crazy constraints like this product is going to be like over constrained like for sure but all the learnings you get from this then you're going to be able to move them to like the main app and build like infra that uh makes sure you like you don't overfetch and in a scalable way so for example like relay came from this experiment where like they wanted to rebuild the like mobile like the tablet websites on the web and they were like okay we need like to have less than one second so how how do we do that and they realized that okay we need to fetch everything at once and how do you do that then we need to have like all the queries being statically enable so how do you do that now you got to integrate with GraphQL and all of this like trickle down together it reminds me of hearing stories about people being punch card developers where they would yeah. write all their code on punch cards and they would get it exactly right the first time yep um it's kind of the constraints. Yeah, is but the this is also, yeah. This is also a trade-off because, like, if you like require everyone to use punch card, like, okay, sure, your site is going to be fast, but like, you're going to have like zero features. <laughs> and so, one of the stands we use at Facebook is we let product developers do whatever they want, make it like, and they're going to try to get their metrics and whatever. But as an infra team, we're going to build abstractions so that. Product developer using this abstraction like cannot fuck it up. Like if they use the abstraction like the way it was built, like by default is going to have all of those learnings. And so, yeah, this is one of the also interesting thing about like the way we do open source is on open source like the product that starts on open source like they grow from nothing to something, but at Facebook like we grow from nothing to something, a lot of things. And the one that worked like now we open source and we continue growing. So mm. do people in developing countries use Facebook in ways that are starkly different than how we use them in the U S? Uh, yeah. So yeah, one of the anecdotes is that like many people, what they do is they take their phone during the morning and try to load up as many stories as possible because they're on Wi-Fi at home and oh. it's free. <laughs> and then, like, the entire day, like, they remove, like, all connectivity and then uh, use Facebook, like, offline. And so, like, this is a use case that, like, we didn't think about. And now we are, like, making price to make sure it works. But, like, yeah, these kind of things. Oh, that's so fascinating. I mean, I can I can relate to that because, like, sometimes going on an airplane, if I don't want to pay for Wi-Fi, I yeah. open up a ton of tabs yep. that I'm going to read while I'm on the plane. Uh, but like with Facebook, that wouldn't work at all. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it would be a lot different. Um, that's super interesting. So um, yeah, I'm not sure if you have any insight into this next mm. question, but machine learning is a really big focus at yeah. Facebook and, and all the other uh, big tech companies. It seems like kind of like a core um, idea that people are racing yeah. on. Um, so is this is this discussion totally orthogonal to 
building front-end technologies, or are there any mm. machine learning considerations that uh, that come into account when you're building the React ecosystem? Yeah. So it's interesting because, like, my first project at Facebook was, uh, like, we have Bootcamp, which is, like, one month and a half where we are, like, we, don't have, we are not assigned to any pro- product or project or team or whatever, and we pick up tasks that, are in- like, that sounds interesting and, like, work on them. And one of those, those tasks was Pete Hunt uh, said that, like, the task was one line saying, like, oh, we've got all of those facial recognition, like, fac- facial detection data, and it would be nice to use it to improve, like, the tagging experience. So I said, yeah, it sounds cool. And so uh, on, the v- on the photo viewer, now when, y- when you press, like, tag, it shows, like, squares where, like, all the faces we detected. And so this thing is, like improved the like whole user experience for Facebook because now people are tagging more persons. Like people are, are being tagged more often. And so they get more notifications, they come more often, they comment and like there's a lot of interaction going on. And so all of this like uh like product like it improved the product but the core technology is actually machine learning. Like how do you detect faces? And so what we realized is that the more sophisticated we come, uh, we go with those machine learning techniques, the better the product is. And so this is a dynamic that is only like very recent because mm-hmm. until like a few years ago, like sure we could like infer a lot of things with machine learning, but we had no idea how to use it to make the product better. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I actually watched a talk from Jeff Dean recently where mm-hmm. he was saying that one of the interesting things about neural nets is that the more it's it's almost like the more engineering that goes into them the more data that goes into them the better the results are and yeah. um, maybe that sounds like something that's obvious but like to anybody that's worked at a large company and seen how products scale mm. and like as they get more bloated it actually gets harder to work on them this is actually like kind of a counterintuitive thing yeah so um, yeah i would like I wouldn't say this, like the second thing is true that you said. Like the oh. more features you have, the more bloated it is. Like the worse it is. Oh, okay. So, so for example, like like all the time, like there's product teams that try to re-implement a simplified version of some feature. So for example, like when I started, we tried to re-implement like a lean version of the uh, photos part of your profile, and so we we're like, oh my god, like this is like we are displaying like more photos, like we. Like, it looks better, like, it feels better, it's more performant and everything. And then we, like, did an A-B test and, like, all the metrics were down. And so we were like, whoa, whoa, why is this? And then we realized that, oh, there was actually a like button at the top right, like, an ugly like button at the top right of the album. And by adding this back, then, like, a lot more people liked the album and therefore, like, engagement was up and, like the, like, the virtual cycle went up. So, and, like, we've seen this, like, so many times during this product that in the end, like, we had to put back all of those features because those are features that people actually use. And so if you're trying to make a leaner version, like, they don't, like, they don't use Facebook as much and, like, they don't get enough value for this. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean... It's- Okay, I guess that makes sense. I mean, there's kind of a difference between leanness in UI and leanness in like how the infrastructure or the back end mm. works. But yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, 
so when when you're like thinking about machine learning products, yeah. and again, this is maybe going down the rabbit hole that you're not familiar with, but um, do you know how much the phone, like the phone's processor, takes part in the machine learning feedback loop? Because you know, all yeah. so many of Facebook users are on mobile. Uh, is mm. Facebook leveraging that fact in the in the feedback loop, or does everything happen yeah. server side? So. I don't know, like, like I don't know today, like what's being done, but I know that there are experiments to try to make reduced models to do face detection on the phone, for example. But like, I've left the photos team like two and a half years ago, and like, I'm not sure at this point, like, what's being mm. done. But yeah, like, this is like something, like, in the like grand thing of scheme of things, like, Facebook on the web was like really pushed by the server, and like. We try to make it in a like single page app, but like it's not really. Now, if you look at the iOS or Android like developments, like they're really like single page app. Like the client is storing like all the data, is caching things. Like this is the client driving things, and so we're thinking more and more. And like I'm sure, like machine learning models like are going to go like to go in that direction, having more things on the client. Are, are we wasting a lot of processor cycles on our phones? Uh, surely. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Super broad question. Um, we did a show about Elm and yep. I've heard a lot of comparisons about Elm yep. and React. Yep. Have you looked at Elm? Yeah, I've looked at Elm. So I actually looked at Elm, script, and all of those. And those, like, I'm super interested in those because, like, this is like the FB Lite example where they take, like, all of those crazy constraints and they try to uh, come up like with a unified theory around all of those, and this is like very good to like find out like new patterns that that can be useful. But what I found out in practice is that uh, by being pure in this sense that you don't accept any other constraint, then you limit yourself because like some things that were easy before are like super hard. And like for example, like Haskell, like there's a huge community of people like loving Haskell and building small things, but like there's not a lot of people like writing like big thing with Haskell, mm. and so but there's a lot of things to learn from Haskell, like the type theory, like uh, functional thing that we try to embed in React. So the way I want React to move forward and React Native and all of those is to take like to let them like do the hard work of pioneering like all of those techniques and then bring it back to JavaScript, like change JavaScript, adding types to JavaScript and etc. Mm. So that we get like a a middle ground between like untyped JavaScript that like really sucks and like fully typed Elm that like is good for what it does, but like if you want to escape from this, like you're stuck. And Redux is a good example of like taking Elm architecture and like porting it to JavaScript. Uh, yeah, and I, I heard you guys just hired Dan Abramov. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, I mean, can, can you talk any more about Redux? Like, are, are you oh. are you thinking of um, like how you reframe development at Facebook using Redux, or like mm. how does how does that play into your your thinking? So, like the 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 great thing about Flux architecture is that it's very vague, and like <laughs> so we have like implementation of Flux internally. Like it's ma- many different teams that have many different implementations, but like when the new product is started, like they get to choose whatever they want. And like many people are starting to use Redux on their new products. So this is like how you organically grow. And I don't know, like if Redux is successful, like probably like in six months or a year or two years, we're going to say like, okay, 
all of those things that were written pre-Redux were going to convert it to Redux or something like this. Mm. But then, like, if those experiments are not successful at scale, then we're going to say, like, okay, well, this was a failed experiment and we're going to, like, try something else. Sure. Well, Chris, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, as always. Uh, it's just been really interesting, and I'm still a huge fan of React. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasant uh, hour. Yes, definitely. 